The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Once slavery was out of the Constitution, and we could add the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments particular, the 14th Amendment's guarantees of equal protection and due process of law applied not only to the federal government, but against the states. Then our Constitution embodied a principle that I think we would recognize as moral. And there's a reason that over the Supreme Court building, we have the phrase equal justice under law. It's a moral aspiration that goes beyond just the principle of rule following. And if you care about the technicalities of legal philosophy, you could say that through that constitutional arrangement, which might be positive law because we all agreed to it, we brought in moral principles, specifically the moral principle of equality uh, and the moral principles entailed in due process. We could argue about what those are, but there seem to be some fundamental moral principles embedded at least in equal protection, and I would argue in due process as well. So once you have a constitution like that, you can hold it out as a moral model and see if we're living up to it. I'm Jack Goldsmith, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, November 23rd, 2021. I sat down with Noah Feldman, the Felix Frankfurter Professor of Law at Harvard University, to discuss his rich new book, The Broken Constitution, Lincoln, Slavery, and the Refounding of America. We discussed the evolution of Lincoln's constitutional thought on slavery, compromise, and war from the time he was a young man through his most difficult of presidencies. Was Lincoln a great constitutional thinker? And if so, why? Noah and I also discussed the moral standing of the Constitution at different times in American history, whether constitutional compromise is good or bad, and what these issues teach about current constitutional controversies. It's the Lawfare Podcast, November 23, Lincoln and the Broken Constitution. Noah, I loved this book and I learned so much. I know a decent amount about Lincoln's thinking, but I didn't know as much as I thought I knew. So I, I just really admire the book. So you let's start off with the original compromise constitution, the compromise constitution that, that Lincoln adhered to and believed in, and then ended up getting disrupted in the, in the civil war. What, what, what was that? I'll answer that in one second. First, thanks for having me, Jack. Thanks for reading the book. And like you, I thought I knew something about Lincoln's constitutional ideas because, I don't know, I teach constitutional law like you do. And then the research that I did suggested to me that I knew a lot less than I thought I did. And so that's one of the reasons that I wrote the book. The Compromise Constitution was the basic set of principles that got North and South to agree actually to enter into the Constitution in 1787. And we always think about the small state, big state compromises, which gave us the Senate, But we don't think a lot about the compromises over slavery. And there were basically three of them, each of them demanded by different southern states. The first, which was demanded by South Carolina, 
was that the international slave trade not be outlawed by Congress for at least 20 years. And that was because there were people out there in the world at the time in the British Empire who were already starting to call for the abolition of the slave trade. This can be confusing because we think of the slave trade as no different than slavery. They're both immoral. But at the time, lots of people who thought that slavery was okay thought that the international slave trade was terrible. And so the first efforts at abolition actually came focused on international trade in enslaved people rather than on slavery itself as a phenomenon. And the South Carolinians were worried that if the international slave trade was banned, they wouldn't be able to buy enough enslaved people to staff their plantations. And so they insisted on an extra 20 years, and they got it. The second compromise was the three-fifths compromise, which listeners to this podcast will already know about. Basically, the southern states said they wanted African-American enslaved people to count as full people for purposes of counting their population and getting more representation, but not to be able to vote. And northerners said, what are you talking about? If people of color can't vote, they can't count. They should count for zero. And the upshot was a three-fifths compromise that actually, interestingly, James Madison was one of the people who called for. Today, we see the moral repugnance of the idea of counting three-fifths of, of an African-American as a person, and that has a symbolic weight that's even worse than the real practical compromise that existed. And last was the Fugitive Slave Clause. And this is really the big one, because the Fugitive Slave Clause meant that if a person escaped from slavery in a southern state and went to a northern state where the law did not recognize slavery, that person would have to be returned to enslavement by the northern state, meaning by the state courts, by the apparatus of the state. And that meant that those northern states had to acknowledge that under the federal constitution, which was binding supreme law, slavery existed and the right of people who, were, who purported to own slaves to keep owning them was recognized and acknowledged even by their own state laws. That was a huge concession because at the time it was already possible to imagine and some courts had already said that if there was no slavery in a place and an enslaved person went to that place, they weren't a slave anymore because slavery wasn't recognized by the local law. And the Fugitive Slave Clause made that an impossibility. So these were big compromises. And my last thing on this, Jack, is just that everyone knew they were compromises. Alexander Hamilton, speaking to the New York Ratifying Convention, openly said when he was criticized, and the Constitution was criticized for these provisions, they were an accommodation, that's the word he used, without which we could never have reached an agreement with the South. And although Hamilton was not quite the abolitionist that Lin-Manuel Miranda would have us think, he was still not pro-slavery, particularly. He may have owned slaves at one point in his life, but he was not a pro-slavery person as a political matter. So he wasn't just hiding any. He just wasn't hiding anything. He was calling it like it was. Yes. So there's one more point about the Compromise Constitution I want to pull out because I thought it was interesting. And that was that this Compromise Constitution was in some sense, directed toward or facilitating or contemplating Western expansion? The way the Compromise Constitution developed was really, really interesting. You know, in 1787, some white Americans imagined expanding the country a little bit westward, but they were sort of thinking of like the Ohio River Valley. The idea of extending all the way across the continent to the Pacific Ocean really came in later years with things like the Louisiana Purchase, where Napoleon, to the surprise of the Americans, offered this kind of right of settlement for a very cheap price to the United States. And that led Americans to think, huh, maybe the other global empires who have a stake and an interest in this continent aren't really going to have the capacity 
to hold on to it, and maybe we will. And so that began the process of expansion. And expansion was really driven, it turns out economically, by the expansion of the cotton growing industry, which was itself enabled by a hugely important technological development, the most important technological development before the Civil War, even more important in a lot of ways than the railroad, which became more important later, namely the cotton gin. The cotton gin made it profitable to grow cotton in lots of places where it had not previously been profitable to do it. And what happened was that as a consequence, the cash crop of cotton began to spread, not just all the way across the southern part of the United States, but west along that same southern line. And so the first driver of expansion was actually finding new places where cotton could be grown. And to do so profitably, you needed enslaved people to grow it. What that did in tandem is that it created a need in those places to buy produce and livestock to feed the enslaved people and their masters. The reason for that was if you were just growing the cash crop of cotton, you weren't growing food and you weren't raising livestock sufficient to support you. As a result, the Western United States at the time, what was called the Old Northwest, the area that Lincoln was from, Kentucky, Indiana, Illinois, began to raise the livestock and raise the produce to feed the southern states. And then they got that stuff down the Mississippi River on flatboats, like the flatboats that Lincoln took a couple of times down the river himself. And they would sell that stuff in New Orleans or close to New Orleans, where it would then be spread all the way through the south. The result is there was a very complex economic relationship where expansion westward served both southerners and northerners, and everybody needed the slave trade and needed slavery to make that happen. And that's why this compromise constitution was maintained. Even as lots of northerners started to think that slavery was not such a good idea, they needed the deal with the South because they wanted to drive Western expansion, and they needed union because when we bumped into people along the way, Native Americans, Mexico, anybody like that who might stand in the way of our expansion, we needed to raise armies and defeat them. And for that, we needed a unified United States of America. So the truth is, everybody who was white had a lot to gain by this expansion, and the Compromise Constitution served all of their interests. And the final piece of the pre-Civil War puzzle I want to get out or, or scene I want to get out is Lincoln's view about this, because I was surprised by the extent to which Lincoln, following Henry Clay, really embraced this idea that this was the compromise that was the price of union. This was the way the Constitution was formed. Whatever he thought about slavery, the idea that the three compromises to slavery that you identified Lincoln, in some sense, I mean, you can correct me if this isn't the right word, but viewed that as as legitimate. He accepted that as part of the Constitution that he viewed as law, and he was kind of with Clay in the series of compromises that aimed to preserve Union in the decades before the Civil War. I think you put it perfectly. And the reason for that, and this is something to give both of us pause, Jack, is that like you are and like I am, Lincoln was a rule of law guy. And he viewed the Constitution as the genuine rule of law. And therefore, the compromises in the Constitution, which he thought were in some way morally problematic, he wasn't a crazy abolitionist, which is how he thought of abolitionists, who thought that the immorality of the Constitution meant you shouldn't obey it. But he didn't think the compromises were great. 
He did, however, think that they were the law. And you can see this really clearly in a speech he gave in 1838, pretty early in his political career, at the Young Men's Lyceum in Springfield, Illinois. They call it the Lyceum speech. And the speech is basically a pro-rule of law speech criticizing abolitionists and anti-abolitionists who were breaking the law by advocating for abolition and by trying to shut down abolitionism. And Lincoln comes across as criticizing both sides. And he says what we need is rule of law. And he gives as his proof of this that there are people, he says, who are not satisfied with being a president or a governor. They want to be great men of history. And he named Napoleon and Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar. And he said people like this will try to become great men even at the expense of enslaving free men or freeing slaves. And those were equally bad from his perspective because they did not respect the rule of law and they didn't respect the Constitution. And he used reason rather than passion as his model because reason was the language of the law. This is a young Lincoln who was becoming a lawyer and was deeply committed to these principles. And so with Clay, what he wanted was to support and uphold the ongoing rule of law constitution. The consequence was that even though he personally hoped, as Clay always did, that slavery would on its own become extinct, perhaps because it wasn't economically of interest or for some other reason. They didn't really have a good theory about how this would happen. But although he hoped that would happen, and he was willing to support compensating slaveholders who voluntarily emancipated their slaves, he understood that the Constitution formally protected slavery. And as a consequence, he thought that an oath to support the Constitution was an oath to recognize and acknowledge the constitutional protection of slavery. And he said that as late as his first inaugural address. This is something that honestly blew me away. You know, picture yourself standing in front of the Lincoln Memorial, where Lincoln is enshrined as a god. You know, it's based on an Athenian temple. From a purely, you know, religious standpoint, we would almost say there's something sacrilegious about it, but this is American political theology. And on one side of Lincoln, written up high on the wall, is the second inaugural. And on the other side is the Gettysburg Address. And the first inaugural is nowhere to be seen. And I didn't know why that was until I went and read the first inaugural. And the first paragraph of the first inaugural, Lincoln says, the Constitution protects slavery. I believe I have no authority to change that. And I have no desire to change that. And so that was Lincoln's view right up until the time that he became president. And and he also said in that same speech, I have an oath registered in heaven to uphold the Constitution. And this was part of the Constitution. So we're going to get to the struggle he had with that view. And frankly, there were hints of it even when he was president, as you document. Before we get to that, can you explain, Sean Wilentz of Princeton reviewed this book in the New York Times, and he took sharp objection to your, I think he did, I couldn't really understand the criticism. He took sharp objection to your conception of the Compromise Constitution and Lincoln's adherence to it. And there must be some academic debate and dispute I don't understand behind this. Can you explain what's going on there? Yeah, I think there are two parts. So one is, Sean wrote a book in, I think it was 2018, called No Property in Man. And the book, which, if I may be so bold, was not widely well-received by academics, argues that the framers, who never used the word slavery in the Constitution, they used you know embarrassing circumlocutions because they were ashamed of slavery, therefore were creating a constitutional order that opened the possibility for the abolition of slavery. 
This is a view that sometimes has been advocated for, and I discuss this in the book, as a matter of fact, by people who made a political choice to read the Constitution against its obvious and natural meaning in the hopes of generating change. So this was not the view of most of the abolitionists who preferred to condemn the Constitution as immoral, but it was a view adopted by a few quirky figures, a guy called Lysander Spooner, who was a fascinating, self-educated libertarian who claimed that the whole Constitution was actually anti-slavery. It was also the view that was eventually adopted by Frederick Douglass, who started his career saying the Constitution was immoral, then said it was impossibly self-contradictory, and then it ended up saying, for political reasons, we should read the Constitution to be against slavery, no matter what we know otherwise, because that's the way we're going to make the argument to the general public. So what Wilentz was doing in that book is he was kind of cherry-picking the arguments of people who wanted to make out the Constitution as not that bad. And that's part of why he is critical of the idea that there even was a compromised Constitution. The other thing that's going on is that Wilentz is a strong critic of the 1619 Project. Now, my book is not part of the 1619 Project. I wasn't part of the 1619 Project. And in fact, my views are pretty different from those of most of the people who participated in that. But Wilentz is worried that if mainstream American constitutional thinkers admit that the original constitution had aspects of slavery and therefore of white supremacy baked into it, that that will lend credence to the view that we can't advance and we can't improve. And I think that's a political rather than an academic worry that he has. But that's one reason he's coming after me. You know, he's attacking me as a proxy for attacking those folks, even though my book doesn't actually say that we can't improve. And to the contrary, my book makes the argument that Lincoln broke the Constitution and we have really improved since. So in that sense, he's not at, I mean, he's mad at me, but he's really mad at somebody else. So that makes sense to me. It did occur to me, though, that, you know, you did give full life to the debates about whether pre-Civil War, about whether the Constitution was a pro-slavery or anti-slavery document. And it did seem like those debates did remind me of the 1619 Project and reactions to them. It, it was kind of, uh, it's not the same debate, but it kind of has the same flavor as that debate, it seems to me. I think you're right. I mean, one of the most fascinating things I came across in doing research for the book was something that I don't think has really been written about before much, if at all, which are debates among black abolitionists, free black abolitionists, in the 1840s and 50s about whether the Constitution should be read as a pro-slavery document or as an anti-slavery document. And they're very frankly debating this, both in terms of whether it's moral to participate in politics under the Constitution, but also in terms of like what will help, like what will work to get people free. And in those debates do have moments of sounding pretty similar, but what's interesting is they show you that both sides have logic and have some plausibility to them. You know, it starts with the people who say, uh, read the Constitution and look at how the Supreme Court has interpreted it. It's obviously a pro-slavery document, and therefore it's immoral. And others who say, well, there's one who says very literally that I quote in the book, I need to do something about the fact that my brethren are enslaved, and I'll make any argument I can to get there. And if that means wrapping myself in the Constitution, I'll wrap myself in the Constitution. And then one of the other participants in one of these debates responds to him by saying, buddy, you can wrap yourself in the Constitution and sit under the Bunker Hill Monument in Massachusetts, and the fugitive slave catcher will still catch you and return you to slavery under the Constitution, which is a pretty devastating legal answer to this aspiration. So yeah, I mean, 
people were debating this question of the best way to read the Constitution already then. And those people were the people who cared most about the issue and who had the most skin in the game, namely African-American abolitionists. Okay, let's get to the, the Civil War. This is really the, the center of the book and the most interesting part of the book to me. And that is what you describe as Lincoln's, the extraordinary transformation in Lincoln's beliefs about the meaning of the Constitution. And this doesn't happen all at once. You know, he becomes commander in chief. Everything is crashing around him. Lincoln, you know, he was a great lawyer, I think it's, it's proper to say. And his views in light of various crises sort of moved away from the compromised constitution towards, I think it's fair to say, more radical views of the constitution. So just give us a sketch of, of, of those things. There are three areas in particular, going to war to preserve the union, suspending habeas and emancipation, the emancipation proclamation that you focus on. But just give us a sketch. And then I want to have some follow-ups on how his thinking changed. Great. Let's take them one at a time. So first of all, I agree with you. Lincoln was a brilliant lawyer, and his greatest lawyering came in this period of time as a theorist of the Constitution in crisis. And you can see in real time his legal views evolving and changing in response to felt necessity. So let's start with the question of whether it was lawful for him to go to war to preserve the Union initially without the support of Congress. I have to say I never thought about this in a serious way before doing the research for this book, even though, like you, I spent a lot of years thinking about authorizations for use of military force and executive power and when the executive can go to war uh, on his or her own. I never thought of that in relation to Lincoln. I just sort of thought, well, of course, it's obvious, right? I mean, the South seceded, so of course you can go to war. But that turns out not to have been the view of the Department of Justice or the president prior to Lincoln's election. James Buchanan, his predecessor, and his attorney general, Jeremiah Black. Black had issued a very long, thoughtful, formal legal opinion, which Buchanan had adopted and put in his last State of the Union address, which said the following. It said, it's an act of revolution for the South to secede, so they shouldn't do that. But if they do that, there's no provision in the Constitution that authorizes the use of force to force them back into the Union. They acknowledged, as Lincoln would later argue, that if the laws were not being enforced, the take care clause of the Constitution gave the executive the authority to make sure the laws were being enforced. But Black and Buchanan said that only applied if there were actually people on the ground, judges, U.S. marshals, anybody on the ground who was trying to enforce the law, and then the executive branch could go and help them do it. But there was no one like that in the seceded states because all of the federal officials had resigned. And so according to Black and Buchanan, what that meant was that forcing the states to remain violated the underlying constitutional principle of the consent of the governed. And therefore, they believed that although this was an act of revolution to secede, and it wasn't therefore legitimate under the Constitution, the federal government had no power to do anything about it. Lincoln responded to that initially by saying, I have the power to execute the laws. In fact, I have a duty under the Take Care Clause to execute the laws, so I'm going to go in and do it. From there, he gradually worked his way to the view that the South was actually engaged in acts of treason, and that authorized something more than just enforcing the law. That authorized something more like full-scale war. Now, Lincoln never fully resolved the problem that he never recognized the Southern states as lawful combatants. And therefore, in some sense, constitutionally, never thought that he was declaring war on them. 
he kind of elided the question of whether he had the power to wage war that comes from the constitutional rule as commander in chief in what was not in fact a declared war. He just sort of sloughed over that. But he developed a very powerful theory of necessity. And this is really key to his other two big developments, according to which he could do as commander in chief whatever it took to win the war and return the southern states to the Union. And the first place where that really came up was in the suspension of habeas corpus. So as lawfare listeners probably know, the Constitution does say that the writ of habeas corpus, which is the right not to get arrested and detained without charge or trial, can be suspended in times of rebellion. But the place the Constitution says that is in Article 1, Section 9, right after the section of the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, that lays out all of the powers of Congress, not in Article 2, which is about the executive power. And it's about as clear from context as anything could be that the Constitution contemplates that Congress, not the president, would suspend habeas corpus. Lincoln didn't wait for Congress to suspend habeas corpus. He did it himself before Congress had been convened when he was worried that, especially in Maryland, individuals who were resisting the power of the Union were going to make it very difficult and were making it very difficult for Union troops to come from the North to go and protect the Capitol in Washington, D.C. They were burning down bridges and doing other things like that. And so the first declarations of the suspension of habeas corpus, which were done by Lincoln's generals with his authority, didn't happen in the southern states that had seceded. They happened in the border states where Lincoln was worried about interference. And famously, the Chief Justice of the United States, Roger Taney, issued an opinion in a case called Ex Party Merriman, explaining very calmly and clearly that this was hopelessly unconstitutional, and Lincoln just ignored him. And then when Congress convened, Lincoln asked them to ratify his action. That might have made it a lot better, and Congress refused. And Lincoln then just continued to suspend habeas for multiple years. Eventually, Congress passed a law a couple years later authorizing suspension. And even after Congress passed that law, Lincoln took his sweet time before he changed his authorizations of suspension to rely on that law, so that by the end, it had been about two and a half years where the suspension had been unilateral. And then on top of that, and this is something that I had not learned in my history classes, Lincoln used this suspension primarily to arrest journalists and critics of the war. Somewhere between 15 and 40,000 people were arrested under military arrests, detained in all cases without trial, as what the newspapers at the time, including the pro-Lincoln newspapers, called political prisoners in military forts all over the United States. And it was broad, perhaps not systematic, but very, very extensive. And it affected the way you could publicly speak about the war. And again, Lincoln justified all this in terms of military necessity. And here's where his arguments, I think, got them furthest and furthest from legal plausibility. For example, by saying that it seemed wrong to him that he had to arrest and punish someone who resisted the draft, and that therefore it followed that he should be able to, morally speaking, arrest and punish anybody who encouraged people to resist the draft. And that encouragement included anyone who said the war was a bad idea, because saying the war was a bad idea weakened the morale of soldiers and made it more likely that people would 
resist the draft. And to my mind, you know, that's no longer what we recognize as a plausible legal argument. Last but not least is Lincoln's most significant breaking of the Constitution as he understood it, and that was by his eventual decision to emancipate enslaved people, not in the North, but in areas controlled by the Confederacy. And here I'll just say Lincoln made it really clear early in his presidency that that was unconstitutional in his opinion, and he called it dictatorship, his word. So I was a little shocked in a a review of the book in the Washington Post that a reviewer said it was, quote, jarring to hear Lincoln described as a constitutional dictator. It may sound jarring, but I was literally just using Lincoln's own description of what he thought emancipating slaves would be to evaluate Lincoln's own conduct a year after he said it. And here, too, Lincoln gradually and painfully, I spent a lot of time in the detail in the book, he worked his way to the idea that as commander-in-chief, he had the right to do whatever it took to win the war. And if that entailed suspending the property rights, not just suspending, but expropriating the property as it was understood under the Constitution of rebels, he could do so. And that, therefore, he could put an end permanently to slavery in the areas under Confederate control. Now, I think that was an extraordinarily wonderful moral act, but it was not a constitutional act as Lincoln understood it up until that moment. And I think we should just be honest about that fact. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Okay, good. I mean, just about all those arguments are arguments that, as you show, Lincoln at one time did not hold and, and rejected almost. But then he came under the, the really trying conditions of the Civil War and under the pressures of necessity to adopt these arguments. It seems to me that it's very ambiguous or uncertain how we're meant to interpret this. And, and I think you interpret it in different ways at different times in the book. Sometimes you say, as you just said, that Lincoln was breaking the Constitution, and that's one way to look at it. Sometimes he was acting on the basis of necessity, which he viewed as sometimes being authorized by the Constitution, usually through the Commander-in-Chief Clause, but not always. Sometimes, and these things aren't necessarily mutually exclusive, he was transforming the Constitution. And yet you could also see, I think it's fair to say, and, and Lincoln would have said, the earlier Lincoln would have said, that he was acting as a tyrant. And in some sense, all four of these things are true. All four of these judgments are true. And how are we so supposed to in- sort this out interpretively? What, what is the bottom line here? You know, here we're treading on an area where, Jack, I think you might be literally the acknowledged expert in the world. And it's what happens when someone is making arguments that are shaped like legal arguments. 
They look like legal arguments. We know that those legal arguments are being shaped under conditions of what is perceived as dire necessity. And they are arguments that are wildly unconvincing to a reader who can separate himself or herself from political or moral feeling. There's a kind of sense that all trained lawyers have of what is a plausible legal argument. We can point to it. We can characterize its features. It's not quite that we know it when we see it, but it is that there are features that we're familiar with. And then there are arguments that just seem to be beyond the pale of what is conceived of as plausible legal argumentation in that time and place. And what I would say here is that under conditions of war, Lincoln's arguments went from plausibly defensible to lawyers of his time and place to way beyond what looked plausibly defensible. And I can prove that not only by using my own assessment, but by what other people said at the time. So I'll just give you one really concrete example. So a Supreme Court justice who may not be one of the absolutely greatest Supreme Court justices of all time, but he's, you know, he's in a plausible list of, say, I don't know, the 30 or 40 best. And that was a justice of the Supreme Court called Benjamin Curtis. Now, Curtis was a Massachusetts man, graduate of Harvard College and Harvard Law School. And on the Supreme Court, the thing he's best known for is for dissenting in the Dred Scott case. In that case, when Chief Justice Taney held that African-Americans had no rights, that white people were the government were entitled, required to recognize, Curtis sharply and harshly disagreed in a very powerful legal argument. He also shortly thereafter resigned. And no one knows exactly why he resigned. Some people say this was a resignation in protest, in which case it would be the only resignation in protest in the history of the Supreme Court. So this is, my point is, this is not some apologist for the Confederacy. He wrote a long pamphlet, which really was a short book, in response to both the habeas corpus suspension and the Emancipation Proclamation, in which he laid out in great detail why both of these things were grossly unconstitutional and why, in his view, they both were resting on a presidential theory, Lincoln's theory, according to which the president could do anything, break any law, and change any set of legal relations in order to win the war, which he pointed out could not plausibly be said of the president of the United States as commander-in-chief, especially in areas that were not in wartime circumstances. So, you know, don't, you don't have to trust me for this assessment. You could trust Curtis as someone who just thought that as a legal matter, this was a bridge too far. I also have people, you know, quoted from the same time saying, no one cares about the legality of this. All that matters is it's happened and it's important and we're in a war. So to my mind, these are arguments that I think we can be honest about and take into account. I'll just add one last thought about Lincoln as, as dictator. We hear the word dictator and we automatically think it's awful. But there were people around Lincoln who actually wanted Lincoln to be a dictator and thought that was a good thing. Thaddeus Stevens, who went on to be you know, famous as one of the drafters of the 14th Amendment, in Congress in the run-up to the Emancipation Proclamation, was telling Lincoln openly in the congressional record, you should be a dictator. You should do what Caesar did. You should step outside the Constitution and act boldly. And that will be a good thing. So that language was very much in the air at the time. But here's the last point. When Lincoln did these things, 
he never went so far as to admit openly that he was breaking the law. He came very close. And a bunch of times in the book, I say, you know, this is Lincoln at the very edge of admitting that his arguments are legally implausible. But Lincoln always offered some kind of fig leaf, generally of necessity, to justify the constitutionality of what he was doing. And I think that's also important insofar as it tells you that he didn't want to do what Thaddeus Stevens wanted to. He didn't want to say that he was being a dictator because he didn't want to set that kind of a precedent. And so that's also an important part of the story, which is why I include that part of the story. And I actually just asked the, the reader to say, do you think he was a dictator by doing things that he himself had said and that others thought would be dictatorial? And that's a question that each person can decide for himself or herself. And your book you know, really raises that and tees it up nicely for people to be able to assess. I want to go one more round on Lincoln as a constitutional thinker because, I mean, your book really led me to be puzzled about whether he was a great constitutional thinker especially, you know, he was a great constitutional thinker. You say he's the greatest in times of crisis. That's almost certainly true. You know, on the one hand, in in favor of him being a great constitutional thinker, here was a man who was, he was deeply, seriously committed to law. It was important to him. And I think this is absolutely vital. It was important to him that he act lawfully, that he follow the constitution. That was I mean, I think for Lincoln, you can correct me when after, after I ask this if I'm wrong, but I think that was a kind of a bedrock principle. Another thing is he did his own work. I mean, his attorney general was hapless, pretty useless, and he had some help from others, but he did a lot of this work himself and he worked it, he worked through these legal issues. He was brilliant at legal analysis and at legal craft and at crafting arguments and at, you know, crafting arguments for different audiences in ways that different audiences would find would find persuasive, which is the mark of a great lawyer. And he was doing all of these things in, in just impossibly difficult circumstances. On the other hand, his arguments were opportunistic. They were, you know, changing all the time, given the changing circumstances. He engaged in serious motivated reasoning. They were often outcome driven. He was often looking for, I mean, you know, I remember the, the story you told about when I think it was about habeas corpus, the justification for suspending when Bates wouldn't give him an opinion. So he went to someone else. He just needed a damn opinion to cover yeah. what he was doing. Yeah. When he couldn't get one, he just did it anyway. Yeah. And, and exactly. And then on top of all those negative elements, he was often unpersuasive, as you point out over and over again. So, I mean, I'm just left wondering in what respects he was a great constitutional thinker. Let me give you two examples of his greatness. I mean, I agree with everything you've just said, Jack. I think that's a very fair and and skillful characterization of the complex picture that I'm trying to draw of Lincoln. And it is awe-inspiring, really, if you think about it. I mean, can you imagine a president of the United States today, even like a Barack Obama who had taught constitutional law, doing all of his crucial constitutional thinking in moments of crisis when he's also trying to run a war? I mean, to be fair, Lincoln was pretty bad at running the war. You know, he, he tried to second-guess McClellan, not that McClellan was such a great general, and he was terrible at that. He was way better at the, at, the, at the legal reasoning than he was at the running the war part. But still, the idea that a contemporary president would have that kind of brilliance and constitutional skill, it is kind of awe-inspiring. But let me give you an example of a piece of reasoning that counts as great, whether you like it or not. And this had to do with the question of whether you could go to war in the first place. Remember that the key principle that he was going against was the idea of the consent of the governed. It seems strange under our constitutional arrangements that if a group of people who have, you know, actively 
gotten together in convention and said they don't want to be governed under the Constitution, that you could, under a consent of the governed system, coerce them to be governed. And Lincoln came up with a brand new theory to justify this. And the theory he came up with in real time was that in a majoritarian government, the minority can always use the threat of secession to extract various kinds of claims and various kinds of advantages. And that a system where the minority could always do this would not be a genuine system of Republican majoritarian representative government. And therefore, that there must be an ultimate power in the majority to coerce the minority to stay in the system so that it would remain a rule of law constitutional system rather than a system constantly threatened by the possibility of extra legal secession. Now, Lincoln had never read Hobbes, but this was a deeply Hobbes-like response to a, a fundamental problem in Lockean constitutional theory that the framers never noticed. Namely that if you have a Lockean idea of the consent of the governed, we all get together and agree, we can all come in, we can all go out, then going in is never final. You could go in, but you can always demand more by threatening to get out. And Hobbes' answer would have been, no, you have a central government in the middle. It coerces everybody to stay in. And then after the fact, we say that that's morally and politically justified because people are better off than they would be otherwise. And Lincoln came up with this really entirely on his own under conditions of high pressure. And I think that probably that is the formal constitutional law of today. So that's an example of his greatness. Same with his necessity-driven arguments. You know, we could disagree about whether there was a necessity for everything that he did. I certainly reached the conclusion that there was not necessity for a lot of his suppression of free speech and a suspension of habeas corpus. And a lot of Americans, you know, then and afterwards would, would agree with me, although others would have had the opposite view. But the idea that necessity should drive outcomes in this way, which, as you know, Jack, has been an important principle of our constitutional law ever since, was not really heavily present in the pre-Civil War period. We had the Necessary and Proper Clause, so we had the idea of necessity, but that was with respect to congressional power, not with respect to presidential authority in emergency. But today, that necessity principle remains, for a lot of constitutional lawyers, a crucial element as we try to understand the commander-in-chief power and executive power. So again, it's Lincoln who, who really pioneered that. And I would just conclude by saying, part of this is we can look at what the long-term Supreme Court you know, as it were, verdicts were. I mean, the Supreme Court has validated the some version of the idea of a necessity-driven commander-in-chief power, but the Supreme Court has not validated Lincoln's extreme view that he could suspend habeas corpus and impose martial law in parts of the United States that were not war zones. And after the war in ex parte Milligan, the Supreme Court explicitly repudiated that idea and said, if the courts are open, you can't have military tribunals doing the business of the country, which is exactly what Lincoln was insisting on with the suspension of habeas corpus. You know, that's a constitutional repudiation of Lincoln's point of view. But with respect to secession, if that happened again, I think there's no question the Supreme Court would say that, of course, the president was authorized to use force to force seceding entities back into the union. And that would have been validating that principle. So, you know, I would call it a split verdict. And that's what you would expect when somebody is innovating on the Constitution in, in real time, the way Lincoln was. I'm glad you mentioned his updating and, and filling in the gaps in Madison's thinking, because 
when you made that argument and you made it very clearly, persuasively and powerfully, I thought, wow, that's a deep idea. And I've never heard that idea before. And it is central to making our constitutional form of government work. And as you said, he just kind of worked it out in real time. It is it, really impressive. Let me move on to kind of the crescendo of your of your argument, which is that Lincoln, through these actions and others, reformed the basic character of the Constitution from a kind of compromise about slavery that you might think of as amoral. And you call it, you say that Lincoln cleansed the Constitution of its compromised character, made it a document that we can say embodies a higher ideal, an ideal primarily grounded in liberty and equality, and one worthy of veneration and moral aspiration. So explain how you reached that conclusion, because I, I, on this one, I have some doubts. Fair enough. So I guess I would start by saying, if you just read the Constitution of 1787, it's remarkably devoid of moral language. There's a little bit in the preamble. But in the rest of the Constitution, there's no guarantee of equal protection. And the liberty rights that are articulated in the Bill of Rights, which sound a little bit more moral, were restricted to the federal government. So they weren't being stated as moral rights of everybody all the time. They were just rights that were specified vis-a-vis the federal government. And I think as a consequence, when pro-Constitution people like Lincoln were defending the Constitution before the Civil War, they couldn't really defend the Constitution as moral. The closest they could come was to say there was a moral duty to keep promises, and the Constitution as a contract, a social contract, was a kind of a promise, and so there was a moral duty to keep your promises. And that's because it's hard to say there's a moral duty to enforce a compromise that keeps people in slavery. Even then, it was clear that it's hard to make that argument with any kind of a straight face. Once slavery was out of the Constitution, and we could add the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, in particular, the 14th Amendment's guarantees of equal protection and due process of law applied not only to the federal government, but against the states. Then our Constitution embodied a principle that I think we would recognize as moral. And there's a reason that over the Supreme Court building, we have the phrase equal justice under law. It's a moral aspiration that goes beyond just the principle of rule following. And if you care about the technicalities of legal philosophy, you could say that through that constitutional arrangement, which might be positive law because we all agreed to it, we brought in moral principles, specifically the moral principle of equality uh, and the moral principles entailed in due process. We could argue about what those are, but there seem to be some fundamental moral principles embedded at least in equal protection, and I would argue in due process as well. So once you have a constitution like that, you can hold it out as a moral model and see if we're living up to it. You know, then you have a basis for looking at, I don't know, Plessy against Ferguson, the separate but equal case, and saying, okay, that case is wrongly decided because the Constitution demands equality before the law, equal protection of the laws, and in practice, separateness, segregation was not equal. So you can issue a legal critique of bad Supreme Court decisions that takes on board, at least in my view, the fact that they failed to live up to the moral promise that is made by the Equal Protection Clause. And to my mind, when we today, as Americans, speak about the Constitution, and we obviously disagree a lot about what it means, we almost all speak about it in terms of it being a kind of set of moral aspirations for what we should achieve. And that doesn't matter if you think that the Constitution protects the right to choose, or if you think it protects the right to life. You You could be on opposite sides of the spectrum. Both sides are talking the talk 
of the Constitution as a morally aspirational document. And I think Lincoln really created the circumstances where that was born. And in that sense, he really gave birth to modern constitutional discourse. That's the argument. Yeah. So so I agree with part of that, but I had understood you in the book to say that Lincoln himself effect the transformation. You know, once you include the 13th and 14th and 15th Amendments, he was president when the 13th was passed. Or no, when it was, it wasn't ratified before. Yeah, it went to the states, but it wasn't ratified yet. But he was involved in that. It seems to me that that effectuated this change. Well, let me let me try to make the argument just about Lincoln, because okay, yeah. I do make that argument in the book, and you're, you're making a very fair point, Jack. Yeah, I guess I would put it this way. The original compromise constitution had an underlying realist compromise that basically said to the South, you know, stay in in exchange for the preservation of slavery. And that made the constitution fundamentally at best amoral and maybe immoral. What Lincoln was saying with the Emancipation Proclamation was, we're never going back to that compromise. There's never going to be a constitutional arrangement that protects slavery. There's going to be no more slavery. Once you've said that, it entails, in my view, a principle of equality. It means that white people and black people are going to be equal before the law. It's true that the Constitution hadn't yet been amended to assure that, but it was inevitable, I think, and logically necessary that once there was not going to be slavery, everyone was going to be equal before the law. And I think, you know, Lincoln was already thinking that. He was already thinking about black people voting, for example, long before there was a constitutional amendment to guarantee that as, you know, something that followed from the fact that nobody was going to be enslaved. Once people weren't going to be enslaved, they were going to be equal. So it's in that sense, I want to argue, that Lincoln on his own already broke the non-moral or amoral or immoral structure of the Constitution and substituted a more moral structure. I'm not trying to downplay the 14th Amendment, which is a big deal, of course, but I am trying to say that the directionality was already specified by Lincoln himself. Yeah. Okay. So that, that's more persuasive to me. Just let me make some counter arguments, which may be quibbles. I mean, you know, do you think it was inevitable? You, you present a lot of evidence, you know, that Lincoln, after the Emancipation Proclamation, he was under pressure to withdraw it. He said, no, you know, he said, I can't break a promise once made. But then you also talk about, you know, and you say, again, this was private, not public, the, the late negotiations with Jefferson Davis and the the silent memorandum and the like, where, you know, Lincoln, it seems late, late in the war was still talking about making a deal with the South where, you know, the continuation of slavery might have been on the table. So that's that's one quibble. And the second quibble with with the Lincoln putting us on a an inevitable path is, you know, what if he had lost the election of 1864? Was it inevitable? I mean, is it possible that that, I mean, was, didn't he run against McClellan, who was more sympathetic to the South? And if if McClellan had won, was it really inevitable that emancipation was was going to happen? Again, this might be a quibble because obviously both the conduct of the war and Lincoln's thinking about slavery and equality and liberty were hugely influential in the movement of the country. But I'm just wondering what you think of those two points. I think they're actually pretty closely closely related. So there was a time in 1864 when Lincoln thought he wasn't going to get reelected. And when he thought he wasn't going to get reelected, he was very worried that a Democratic president, McClellan, 
would try to solve the war by reestablishing slavery. And he really didn't want that to happen, but he knew that it could happen. And he wrote this famous secret memorandum or blank memorandum that he wrote, sealed, and had all of his cabinet members sign the outside of so that it would, there would be proof that it had been written prior to the election. And we don't know exactly what he said in it because it was destroyed after he won the election. But Eric Foner, the great historian, argues, I think, pretty persuasively that what he said in there was basically, we might have to reverse the Emancipation Proclamation. I don't want to do it, but that may have to happen as a consequence of the fact that a Democrat is going to be elected. But he really didn't want that to happen. And around that same time, he was meeting with Frederick Douglass in the White House, and he asked Frederick Douglass to do everything he could to use his channels of communication to tell enslaved people in the South to flee their masters now, because it might be too late if he lost the election. But Lincoln himself did not waver in his own personal belief that he believed that there should be no compromise. That is to say, he didn't waver in that after he reached that conclusion and issued the Emancipation Proclamation. He knew that his historical legacy and the future of the country depended on it and depended on the maintenance of that position. So, you know, I guess, could it have gone the other way had he lost? It's a really interesting question, and it depends in part on empirical facts, namely how many enslaved people in the South had escaped or would have escaped if McClellan had won in the time between McClellan's election and taking over and reaching a deal with the South, assuming that that's what would have happened. My guess is it could have happened. My guess is that slavery could have been reinstated as a practical matter. I mean, after all, segregation was instated a decade later, and it was effectuated by force and state power, the same way slavery was. So I would guess that it could have been done. So I don't mean to say that it was, you know, historical inevitability doesn't mean in this case that had a Democrat won and had the North failed to win the war, we would have had different results. That said, when the tide of the war turned, then it was following the course that Lincoln had set, and his course did depend on winning the war, but, you know, he did win the war. And in that sense, he did not ever think for even one moment that if he won the war and won the election, that emancipation would be reversed. So I want to ask you a final question or two on the modern implications of your book. In addition to being a constitutional historian or a constitutional theorist and a commentator on current events in, in the court and in public law, you have this sententious sentence early in the book I'd like for you to unpack and then maybe ask a question about. And I think this is looking forward, maybe the lessons of the book for modern times. You say, with our constitutional fabric once again under pressure, it is time to acknowledge this original failure that you talk about in the book and to substitute a narrative of a repaired and transformed constitution for the received narrative of continuity. What does that mean? Well, first of all, I, ho I hope it's not sententious in the, in the negative sense of that term, but maybe it is. Yeah. I don't think the sententious have a negative connotation. I didn't mean it that way. Who knows? We can, we can look that up and, and find, find out. What I meant to say was the following. We are enmeshed right now in a serious national conversation, which is a valuable conversation to have, about what to do with the legacy of slavery and racism and therefore of white supremacy that 
is in important ways enmeshed in the Constitution of 1787. And my own personal view, which I think the book to some degree bears out, although this isn't why I wrote the book, is that we don't do very well as a nation at this point in time by telling ourselves a false story about our founding in order for us to all be able to live together. I want us to be honest about the founding because, frankly, everybody knows it now. right? In this day and age, I don't think too many people in the country really would believe that the framers were not aware of and engaged with slavery. Maybe some people would insist on that for political reasons, but I think most people get that that's the reality. That said, I am very resistant to any narrative that says because the framers built racism into the Constitution of 1787, we're doomed forever never to be able to make progress or to change or to evolve as a country because we're stuck in a permanent, flat, unchangeable and unchanging model of racism. Now, there are people, thoughtful people whom I respect who hold that view. I'm not one of them. I am much more strongly inclined to the Martin Luther King view that Barack Obama also regularly re-articulated, namely that there is a moral arc of our history of race and that it bends maybe slowly and over a long time in the direction of justice. I don't think it always goes in that direction. So it's not a perfect arc in that sense. There, there's backwards and there's forwards and our history shows that. But I think by emphasizing that the Constitution of 1787 was broken and ruptured, we have an explanation of why it is the case that notwithstanding the slavery that was present in the original Constitution, we're not an inherently racist constitutional order because that order was broken and replaced by a new order. And so even if you think that the 1787 Constitution had racism baked in, that's not the order we have now. We have a different constitutional order. And to me, that knowledge that we have a different constitutional order is crucial to beginning the process of creating some kind of functioning national narrative around race that admits our wrongdoing, but also recognizes our ongoing aspirations and efforts to do better. And I'll go even a step further and say that we need such a unifying national narrative and that the best way to unify ourselves as a country is to acknowledge that we have some common aspirations, no matter what our politics are. We may not agree on how to get there, but we can agree on where we were. And I think we should also be able to agree on what we want to be. We want to be a country that embodies the principles of equality and equal protection of the laws. And if we acknowledge that to ourselves, we can come to terms with and acknowledge the reality of past discrimination and its ongoing effects in a way that unifies us more than it divides us. At least that's my hope. So I love that way of thinking about the Constitution. Before I ask my final question, let me make clear that when I said sententious, I meant aphoristic and not pompous. <laughs> that's, that's fine. There's a fine line, let's just I say. Didn't, I didn't realize that, that it had that other connotation. Okay, here's my final question. So that was a beautiful statement of you know constitutional meaning and constitutional hope. You know, one of the things that I was thinking about in reading your book is what is the role of compromise in that vision? Because compromise has a, you know, unfortunate role, I think it's fair to say, in your 19th century story. I mean, compromise led to one what might think of as an amoral constitution. Compromise led ultimately to 
the Civil War compromises. One of the things that Lincoln expurgated from the Constitution, in a sense, I'm just wondering if there's any carryover, you know, for our fundamental challenges, even beyond race at a constitutional level for the things that we're fighting about as a country. Is one implication that compromise is something to be worried about? I don't think that's what you think, but maybe I'm wrong. What I'm really trying to do here, and I love that question, Jack, and it's, it's a deep and a really important one. What I'm trying to do here is to distinguish two kinds of compromise. And my girlfriend has been telling me, don't call them both compromises too lawyerly. You should call one cooperation or collaboration, the other one compromise. But I'm a lawyer. I can't help myself. And so I think these are two kinds of compromise. So let me, let me try to do it that way. And I'll just call them good compromise and bad compromise. Good compromise, which you could also call collaboration or cooperation or co-creation, is where you and I agree on our overall objective. We don't exactly agree on how to get there, but we know we have to work together. So we take one of our approaches or something between our two approaches and we try that. My, my model would be, you know, you and I are climbing a mountain together and there's a trail and we're not exactly sure which way to go. We don't have GPS. The signs aren't exactly perfect. We both know we're trying to get up the mountain. Neither of us is exactly sure which way to go, but you think we should go this way. I think you should go this way. And I'm like, you know what? Let's go your way, Jack, you know, because we're cooperating. We have the same overall objective. And in that sense, it's a compromise. I think this way is better. You think that way is better, but we're going there. That kind of compromise is not only good, but it's necessary. You can't cooperate in any large project, much less in creating a nation together unless you're willing to make those kinds of compromises. So we need those. Bad compromise is where there's some fundamental moral wrong that I know in my conscience I shouldn't agree to, but I agree to it because there's just no other way for me to get the thing that I want, the bauble that's ahead of me. And, you know, the reality is there probably was no way for the United States to expand to become a continental empire without a compromise between North and South over slavery. There's probably no other way to do it. But without that compromise, we would have probably broken up into a handful of smaller countries, and maybe North America would look a lot more like Europe. There would be different smaller countries across it, and they would, you know, they would share power in some complicated set of ways. There was no, you know, manifest destiny was not in fact destined. It was a product of a series of choices and compromises. And I think, you know, there were some crucial moral moments where some people at least, not all, but some people acted against what they knew in their hearts was the morally required thing to achieve the outcome that they were seeking. And that's the kind of compromise that we do have to be careful about. Now, do I have a magic ball that you can look into and tell you which kind of compromise something is? No, I do not. And, you know, I'm accustomed to living in a world where we used to be pretty sympathetic to other people who we were trying to cooperate with in terms of seeing their aspirations and goals as reasonable ones and seeing them as well-meaning and well-intentioned in politics. And that's gone to a very great extent in this moment. And I think that disappearance is a disaster. But the response that people make to me when I say this is, you're just wrong, Feldman. You know, the other side is terrible. They're immoral people. And you can't have any compromise with people like that. And, you know, can I say I know that I'm right and they're wrong? No, of course I can't say that. All I can say is a lot of people that I am prepared to compromise with do have good moral aspirations, even if we differ about how to get there. So we're in a moment of great 
uncertainty around these things. We're at a moment where the very ideal of compromise is itself in serious doubt. But I think the result will be the continuation of the kind of polarization that we have. If that continues, we can't actually be a single unified country. It's not going to be doable. So if you think that we deserve to participate and co-create in our country and try to make it better, then I think you need the compromise, the good kind of compromise, the co-creation of compromise that rests on the idea that the other person shares your aspirations, even if he or she doesn't agree with your exact means to get there. I would much prefer to live in that world. I recognize there's evidence on the other side, but I remain perhaps naive, but I hope realistically aspirational about our possibilities. I'm with you on that. Thank you, Noah. This is such a great book. Congratulations. Jack, thank you very much. Thank you for reading so carefully and for your fascinating questions and for this great conversation and the opportunity to to reach your Lawfare listeners. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please share the Lawfare Podcast and give us a five-star review on iTunes. Go to thelawfarestore.com for brand new Lawfare pens, lanyards, t-shirts, socks, and more. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this week was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.